Don't go on a crusade, you might just catch your death. Not that that is going to stop you. Wanting to suck your blood. This is the Wargames Orchard. Welcome to the show, my name is GJ and I will be your host today. We're going to take a look at the 5th edition campaign pack, The Circle of Blood. As always, for these campaign pack episodes, for these uh, GJ solo episodes, we will skip over news and hobby as I record these episodes, hopefully well in advance, to fill up any holes that we might have in our schedule due to basically life getting in the way of podcasting. So, without further ado, let's jump right in to the events of the Circle of Blood. These events, this campaign, it takes place in Bretonia, in the area to be precise, a bit just between and uh, to the south of the Forest of Chalon and the Massif Orcal, which is in the Dukedom of Aquitaine. The main antagonist of the Circle of Blood campaign is the Red Duke. We are never giving a name for this Red Duke, what he was called in life, but we are given a little bit of history here. And the Red Duke was the Duke of Aquitaine during the Crusades in Araby. And for the Warhammer history buffs among us, the Crusades were held in what is in the Imperial Calendar 1452 to 1454. And in the Bretonian calendar, those are the years 474 to 476. Now, the Duke disappeared and was thought lost during the Siege of La Chique. But later he was found again. He was wounded and delirious, and his retainers carried him back home, where he eventually died. He was buried, but after three days in the tomb, the Duke rose again. He had become a vampire, he slew everybody that was in the castle and then uh, subsequently raised them again with his newfound powers. And with this new army of the undead that he had just created, he terrorized the Bretonian countryside and this is in the year 1454 of the Imperial Calendar. Now the Red Duke, he was a good friend of the King of Bretonia, the 15th King, Louis the Righteous. However, the Red Duke was also wary of the power of his former friends, so he sought the aid of the Keeper of the Tower of Wizardry. Now, the Tower of Wizardry is just what it sounds like, it's a uh, tower where a wizard lives. It has always been kept by a grail damsel, and the Tower of Wizardry, the Keeper of the Tower, was uh, Isabeau. He, the Red Duke, he sought to obtain Isabeau as his ally, and together with her aid, uh, they would defeat the King of Bretonia and make Bretonia into an, an undead realm, which is basically what he wanted to do. However, the uh, damsel Isabeau, she uh, recognized the Red Duke for the monster that he was, she refused him and she allied herself with the King. This all led to a big battle, the Battle of Saren Field, where the king fought with the duke and he eventually slew him, uh, with the king piercing the red duke with his lance after an hour of battle, an hour of single combat. Now Isabeau, she advised the king to burn the red duke's corpse, but the king refused to do that, 
because of the form of friendship he had with the Duke. So they put him in a tomb and, well, they, uh, the Grail Damsel and, and her companions, they warded the tomb with many powerful spells and sigils to keep the Duke in should he rise again. Which is, of course, exactly what happened. Rise he did. The Red Duke had sealed part of his essence in a crimson jewel formed from the blood of innocence and pure evil magic, to quote the campaign booklet. It took many years for the Duke to reform his body, but eventually he did. But then, however, he found himself sealed in his tomb. He raged and he hungered for countless years and he tried everything from brute force to magic, but the grail sigils were too strong for him to break from the inside out. Now as to what happens next, there are basically two stories, two accounts. Uh, first we have the campaign book, which says that the Red Duke was relieved after about 1000 years by the necromancer Renard. Uh, this is then there's also a novel called the red duke by cl werner i have not yet read this novel but i did look up a synopsis online and according to this synopsis the red duke was freed only after just about 500 years and uh, not by a necromancer but by a witch we will stick with the story of this campaign pack um, because, well, that's basically the focus for today. Uh, we're not uh, doing a book club, at least not yet. Maybe the, we will do something like that at some point in the future. But for now, we will just uh, stick with our review of the campaign pack. And if we adhere to the timeline presented here in the campaign pack 1000 years after the Crusades, that would put the events of the Circle of Blood at around Imperial Calendar 2450, which is just a couple of decades before the current timeline, the current line of events. If you look, for example, at the 5th edition Bretonian Army book, the uh, timeline of Bretonia ends in the year 2500 when King Lewin Leocur uh, becomes king. So, just a couple of decades before the current time, and this actually fits in with a tiny little snippet from the final battle scroll. As you may know, these campaign packs, they come with a campaign booklet and some paper fold-up terrain. And they also have um, a number of battle scrolls where you get the army composition, some special rules and uh, some tactical hints as well as the victory conditions. Now on the final battle scroll, it says that should the Bretonians win, the king will reward the victorious Bretonians with lands and, and titles and uh, treasures when he returns from his errantry war. And the errantry wars lasted from 2420 to 2488 in the imperial calendar. So that would mean that um, at least this timeline is consistent within itself. The events of the Red Duke, the events of the Circle of Blood, happening about 1000 years after the Crusades, so in the early part of the second half of the 25th century. That's about as close as we can get. Now, this campaign pack starts with the story that the Red Duke is raised again by Renard the Necromancer. Renard raises the Red Duke, he, he is a starting necromancer and he thinks he can control the red duke make him do his bidding 
this is of course not the case. Red Duke is much more powerful than this puny little necromancer. But Red Duke does see Renard's worth. So he allies himself with the necromancer, at least for the time being. Renard the necromancer raises the Red Duke. He opens his tomb. Uh, well, of course he doesn't raise him because the Red Duke was already... He had already raised himself. But the Red Duke then goes on to create a new undead army and he attacks Bretonia once again. Contrary to the previous two campaign packs we discussed, the Idol of Gork and the Grudge of Drong, the campaigns in uh, the scenarios in this campaign are not sequential. The first three happen more or less simultaneously. And the reason for this is that the Red Duke sends out three forces at the same time. He sends his necromancer Renard to a nearby village to raise some undead heroes for him to join the cause. He enlists the help of a banshee which he sends to the Tower of Wizardry and he gets his white captain, the Black Knight, which is not Batman I can tell you. The Black Knight he sends this to an important bridge across the river Morceau, which is written in French, but now that I say it out loud, it's just, yeah, more so. I love how they made some of these names up. The final battle happens after these three, and that will take place once again at Saren Fields, the same place where the Red Duke was defeated the first time around. So let's take a look at these scenarios. The first scenario is called Night Battle at Mercal. Mercal is a tiny little village that lies, well, basically on the route from the Red Duke's keep to the castle of the Duke of Aquitaine. And at Mercal there's a graveyard, and this graveyard contains the bodies of some fallen heroes. The goal for the necromancer is to raise these dead and to have them join the Red Duke's final army. However, Markal is not without help, because there is a Grail Knight, the resident Grail Knight, he is known as the Holy Knight, not the same as the Christmas Carol, but the Holy Knight with a K. He resides in the Chapel Serene, and he receives a vision from the Lady of the Lake that the undead host is approaching. So this Holy Knight, he rallies the villagers to defend the graveyard. The battlefield... Um, it contains a couple of hills and in the center of the battlefield is the graveyard. There is a tomb and mausoleum included within the Circle of Blood campaign pack as well as three tombstones. And this mausoleum and the tombstones are set up in a square 18 by 18 inches with the exact center of the square in the center of the battlefield. Now that is going to be your Bretonian deployment zone. Along one of the longer table edges you get the undead deployment zone which is 6 inches from the edge of the board inward and 9 inches away from the Bretonian battle zone. There are also two flanking zones which are 12 inches into the battlefield and uh, well like I said a couple of hills, two forests and that's going to be your battlefield. In this battle the Bretonians they get uh, due to the vision of the Grail Knight they get the chance to deploy first 
and then the undead are deployed. Your Bretonian force may have a um, separate little flanking force that arrives according to the booklet following the rules of the flank attack scenario. And I have to look up the flank attack scenario in the 5th edition battle book. Uh, it says that these forces they arrive in turn 3 and the remaining moves subphase and you can deploy them no more than two ranks of cavalry deep. Now this is a little bit of a uh, there's a little bit of a discrepancy here between the um, campaign battle map that we are given and the rules that the campaign should follow because the def uh, the deployment uh, the flanking deployment zone of the Bretonians is 12 inches deep. I, this is the, the actually the only battle of all of these scenario packs that I ever fought out um, in real life against uh, Wao Jian, also a, a friend of the show. And when we fought this out, we decided that we could just use the entire Bretonian deployment zone. Because otherwise, uh, we would have a bit of a problem. The game only lasts for five turns, and the undead take the first turn, and the flanking force cannot charge the turn it gets onto the table in turn three. So, if you were going to get the most of this, you would have your flanking force, your Bretonian knights, and you would have them deployed in two ranks, and then you would need to spend a turn reforming them into a lance formation, and then for the final turn you might get to charge or you might not depending on the uh, vision the night vision that you get um of course since they re since they arrive in the remaining moves phase you could probably reform them in the same turn but then you would still need to move them up the board in the next turn um before you get to do anything but have a very lucky charge with them so I think that going by the spirit of the scenario, you could probably move your unit up on the board uh, using the, the whole 12 inches of that deployment zone. Maybe still keep to the rule in the battle book where it says that you have to put the rear edge of your unit against the table edge. Well, this is just some, one of those things that you would have to have a little bit of a discussion about with your opponent to see what is fair. And to be honest, this battle is not fair at all because the Bretonians only get 1000 points to spend on troops and the undead get a whopping 1500 points. Now the undead take the first turn, the battle lasts for 5 turns and there are some victory conditions. There is a sudden death victory condition if Renard the Necromancer manages to cast a ray spell on the graveyard uh, then it is a win for the undead. And if the necromancer is killed, it is a win for the Bretonians. If neither of these happens, then the, you count the victory points. And if it is a draw, the victory goes to the Bretonians. There are some victory conditions, uh, which is if the undead win, the, the victory uh, gains, this is called. If the undead win, you get to pick multiple heroes in, for your final battle. But if they lose, you only get one white hero 
that you can use uh, apart from the named characters that may or may not have survived the other scenarios. There are some special rules for this scenario. This scenario takes place at night. And at the start of the game, and at the start of every Bretonian turn, you have to roll 4d6, and that is how far you can see in inches. And this goes for all Bretonian troops and for uh, Renard the Necromancer, because he is still human, he is still mortal. The undead are not affected by this, uh, because they can sense the Bretonians without seeing them. Now, anything that is beyond these 46 inch range you cannot shoot at, cast spells at, you cannot charge, uh, etc. This is going to be a bit of a problem, uh, especially if, like me, the only peasants you have painted up are armed with bows. And um, you have to take some peasants for this because the townsfolk are the ones that are rallied on the graveyard in the service of the Holy Knight. Now let's take a look at our battle scrolls. The Bretonian force is called Mercal's Faithful. They consist of 1000 points chosen from a limited army list and up to 400 points of this can be the reinforcements. The only characters you can take are champions which can have a 25 point magic item as always and you can take the Holy Knight. The Holy Knight has to be taken, he is a special character, he costs 140 points and he's got a stat line of an, a slightly improved Bretonian hero. He's got movement 4, web skill 5, ballistic skill 5, strength 4, toughness 4, 2 wounds, initiative 5, 3 attacks and a leadership of 9. Which is the profile of a Bretonian knight hero but he has an extra point of leadership. The holy knight has a hand weapon, heavy armor and a shield and he is on foot. Giving him a 4 plus armor save. He's got the magic item Righteous Fury, which is a magical hammer charged with a celestial power. Any undead model struck with the hammer will be wounded automatically. Against living opponents, such as the Necromancer, which is the only living opponent you can get, I believe. Uh, maybe ghouls as well. Um, against living opponents, the... Um, the hammer has no special effect and it works just like a normal hand weapon. The Holy Knight has two knightly virtues. He is a grill knight so he has the grill virtue which makes him immune to psychology. And he also has the virtue of utter serenity. This is a virtue you won't find in the Bretonian army book. It is a special virtue that only this knight has. It is only a knight of the holy order that can have this virtue. And since the Holy Knight is the last of them, this virtue is unique to him. How convenient. As long as the Holy Knight is alive, no necromantic spell may be cast against him or any target within 6 inches. This is very good because to win this scenario, Renard the Necromancer has to cast a raised dead spell on the graveyard. So if you put the Holy Knight in somewhere in the middle of that, then... Uh, he probably covers most of the graveyard, most of the tombstones, that was the way that we played it. And if you do that, then the um, raised dead spells that the necromancer take cannot be cast on the tombstone. So he cannot win this scenario. Unless, of course, he wins by uh, victory points or by defeating the holy knight and then casting that raised spell. Furthermore, apart from these characters, 
you can have for your regiments 0 to 1 units of squires, but you can only have a unit of squires if you also take a unit of knight errants. And squires are your um, basically your, your scouting, skirmishing bowmen. You can have any number of bowmen, you can have any number of men-at-arms, and for your reinforcements you can take 0 to 1 mounted squires and 0 to 1 knights errant. And if you wish, the knights errants may take the errantry banner. This is the only magic item, the only magic banner you can give to any of your units. Now for those of you who wish to know, the errantry banner says that the uh, enemy may not stand and shoot against the unit of knights carrying this banner. Now you may wonder why would you take this banner against undead. Well remember this is the 4th edition undead army book that we are talking about. Not the vampire counts book. And in the 4th edition undead army book before the undead was split into vampires and tomb kings. Or what was later be, what would later be the tomb kings. Undead could take for example skeleton bowmen. So it is quite possible to have a unit of uh, something that can perform a stand and shoot charge reaction. Plus the banner is only 5 points, so... Well, you can argue uh, 5 points might be a lot on a 400 point maximum that you can spend. On the other hand, for 5 points you can not get another knight or a mounted squire, so why not? Now for the undead, you get a little bit more points to spend. You got 1500 points to spend on the undead raiders led by Renard the Necromancer. Renard is a Necromancer champion, a level 2 Necromancer. He's got the stat line of a level 2 Necromancer. He costs 188 points, he's got a movement of 4, weapon skill and ballistic skill of 5, strength 4, toughness 3, 2 wounds, initiative 4, 3 attacks and a leadership of 9. He's only got a hand weapon, he is not mounted, so he's got no save whatsoever. He carries the legendary Cursed Book, and this is the reason why Renard fell from grace and began his study of the dark art of necromancy. It radiates an aura of pure evil and dread. Any living creatures within 6 inches of the bearer suffer a minus 1 penalty to their 2 hit and shooting rolls. This is uh, an additional penalty that would make it a little bit more difficult even for the Bretonians. When you finally uh, can see the undead, when they are close enough to shoot, then you have to deal with this minus one to hit. Renard is a necromancer champion and therefore he has two spells which he must take from the necromantic magic lore. Now, necromantic magic in 4th and 5th edition means that you can select your spells. It is the only spell lore where you don't have to randomize your spells. You can pick which two spells you want. When you do this, you have to make sure that at least one of those spells is a raise dead spell. The lore of necromancy contains three raise dead spells. The first one is uh, summon skeletons at a power of one and a range of 18 inches. The second one is Raise the Dead at a power of 2 and a range of 24 inches. And the last one is Summon Undead Horde, power 3, range 36 inches. And for each of these spells you create either 1d6, 2d6 or 3d6 respectively skeletons or zombies. This has to be a new unit placed within the range and everything. And you can also use one of these spells to cast them on the tombstones. 
Now you probably will only need one of these spells because another nice thing about necromantic magic is that you can recast your spells if you did not manage to get them cast the first time. So you can cast the same spell multiple times as long as you have the power cards to do so. Renata Necromancer leads the Undead Raiders. Any unit of the Undead Raiders can have a champion with a magic item worth up to 25 points. And your regiments may consist of 0 to 3 units of skeleton horsemen, one of which may have a magic standard up to 25 points. You can have any number of zombie units, any number of units of skeleton warriors, any number of units of ghouls and any number of units of ghosts. The historical result of this battle was that the Holy Knight died and that Renard manages to take the graveyard, he manages to raise the undead heroes and this means that in the final battle, the, uh, the Battle of Serum Field, the undead force could have more than one white hero to uh, join the fray. There are no specific miniatures for the special characters represented in this battle. There is however an excellent grill hero on foot that can be used with uh, to, to represent the Holy Knight. He is carrying a hammer, he's holding the hammer in a, in a pose where he's uh, about to strike, his other hand is in front of him with his shield. And uh, just basically any necromancer on foot will do for Renard. Let's move on to the second scenario, defense of the tower. Even though the keeper of the tower of wizardry that sided with King Lewin died a long time ago, the Red Duke still wants his revenge against the current keeper of the tower, the Lady Zelda. She considered fleeing to Castle Aquin, which is the castle of the Duke of Aquitaine, Duke Gilon, which we will meet in the fourth battle. But in the end, she would not abandon that holy place so easily. Commoners and knights alike flocked to the tower to take up the fight against the undead. The Red Duke sent one of his most powerful servants, the Banshee. But when she and her force arrived, both the Tower of Wizardry and the nearby sacred Lake Tranquil were heavily defended. The battlefield for this scenario looks as follows. The Bretonian deployment zone is split into two parts, one of which is centered around the Tower of Wizardry and the other one around the Sacred Lake. This is set up in such a way that you have the Tower of Wizardry in the center of a Bretonian deployment zone. Um, there are six inches between the table edge, the, the long table edge on the Bretonian side and the Tower of Wizardry. And then six inches again from the Tower of Wizardry to all the different table edges. So you get a square which is probably about um, again 18 inches by 18 inches. Then there's 24 inches from the Tower of Wizardry to the Sacred Lake. And there you also have six inches around the, square, uh, the, the lake. A square again roughly guessing 18 inches in square where you can deploy. These two features are important because they both provide special rules to the Lady Zelda. There are some forests on the table and across the table is the under deployment zone 12 inches from the table edge. The special rules for the 
items on the battlefield are if the Lady Zelda is within 6 inches of the Tower of Wizardry, she gets an extra magic card. Now how does this work for this you need to know how 5th edition magic works. If you're not familiar with that, at the start of the magic phase you roll 2d6. That is how many cards are dealt and you start dealing with the player whose turn it is. So for example if you roll a 7 and it's your turn, you get 4 cards and I get 3. These cards can contain, um, there are 22 cards in total, some different cards. The most common one is the power card, which is used to cast spells or to boost spells or to boost dispels. You also have a dispel card, which you can use to dispel the spells. Even if you don't have a wizard, you can use this. And then there are some extra cards like uh, escape, which allows your wizard to, uh, to live should he or she die. You can get a total power, which would be an equivalent to irresistible force in later editions. There is a drain magic, which would end the magic phase and a couple of others. In this magic phase in 5th edition, uh, you would play the cards. You, you would select which spell you wanted to play, pay the, play the, uh, pay the power cost. So if you cast a 2 power spell, you would have to put down 2 power cards from your hand. Then your opponent can play a dispel card and can boost the dispel with power cards of his or her own. Then you as a casting player get to put down some more power cards to boost your spell and that will determine the final value of your spell, uh, what needs to be rolled on a d6 dependent on the number of power cards that are on the table and on the wizard level of the caster and the dispeller. It's uh, probably easier if you do it than listen to me ramble about it. Now in this scenario you also have the Blessed Lake and if Iselda is within 6 inches of the Blessed Lake she and any unit she is with are immune to psychology. Ideally you would have her stand within 6 inches of both of these features but unfortunately you can't so you have to choose at the very beginning and if you want to move her from one to the other then you will have to take a couple of turns. The Bretonians deploy first and then the undead get to deploy. The undead get the first turn and this scenario lasts for five turns. For victory conditions if Zelda is slain or flees off the table it is an outright victory for the undead. Otherwise, the undead need to win by victory points, and they do need to win because if it is a draw, the victory goes to the Bretonian side. If the Bretonians win, they get a unit of Grail Knights they can choose for the final battle. The Bretonians lose, then Grail Knights are unavailable for them. The Bretonians have a list of five, uh, 1500 points of which you have to put at least 500 points in knights and another 500 points in commoners. Your character is Lady Zelda. She is a master wizard, a level 3 wizard. She costs 245 points and she's got the profile of a level 3 human wizard. Movement 4, weapon skill and ballistic skill 3, strength 4, toughness 4, 3 wounds, 5 initiative, 2 attacks and leadership 7. Iselda's got a hand weapon and she is on foot so she has no armor save. 
Her magic items are uh, the Amber Amulet, which is a talisman that allows her to recover a single wound at the start of the Bretonian turn. Uh, of course, if she is slain outright, if she loses uh, two of her wounds, uh, sorry, three of her wounds at the same time, then she, the Amber Amulet is powerless to save her. She also got a Dispel Magic Scroll, which is uh, just your regular Dispel Scroll, works the same way as it does in later editions, automatically dispels a spell, except those spells cast with total power. She's got a special rule, Favor of the Lady. Before the battle, Lady Iselda may bestow her favor on one character by giving her veil to the fortunate knight. This knight will be able to re-roll any failed armor saves once. Nice little extra bit of protection. The um, And the way this is written, I, I think it means that uh, you can do this every time. This is not a one-use only thing. Because it says any failed armor save, it may be re-rolled once. I think this is just a, a little bit of a roundabout way of saying you cannot re-roll a re-roll. Which is sort of what's um, always been a theme in Warhammer as far as I know. Iselda is a master wizard. She can select three spells from the battle magic lore. Apart from Iselda, you can have champions. Each champion can have a single magic item worth up to 25 points. For your regiments, you may select 0 to 1 units of real knights, which can have a magic banner up to 75 points, 0 to 1 unit of questing knights, which can have a magic banner worth up to 25 points, 0 to 1 units of Knight Errant, which cannot have a banner at all, at least not a magic banner. Any number of men at arms, bowmen, and squires. The undead also have a list of 1500 points. And this list is led by the Banshee. Now, the Banshee is a character that we have not yet seen in 4th edition. It is a. Um, not in the 4th edition army book. I was surprised to find out Banshees only get in the... Uh, you will only get Banshees for the first time in the 5th edition Vampire Counts army book. And they are way different than the special character, the Banshee, that is on this battle scroll. The Banshee costs 155 points. She's got a movement of 6, weapon skill 4, ballistic skill 0... Strength and Toughness 4, 3 Wounds, Initiative 4, 2 Attacks and a Leadership of 8. She's got a Sword in Hand-to-Hand -hand Combat and no uh, Armor Save. The Banshee follows the special rules for a Wraith. And a Wraith in 4th edition causes Terror. It is Ethereal, which means it can move through terrain and it does not suffer any movement penalties for uh, moving across difficult ground or obstacles, stuff like that. It can only not move through living creatures. Raids are immune to psychology. They cannot be harmed in hand-to-hand -hand combat except by magical weapons, by spells or by demons. But they can still be beaten by combat resolution. Banshees have a chill attack, or raids I should say have a chill attack, which means that any victim that takes a wound from a raid gets a minus one to hit in combat for the rest of the game. So if you take multiple wounds, this stacks. And raids are destroyed when they fail their break test. Um, however, if they lose combat but they don't fail their break test, 
the opponent must also make a break test, which means that if you have a battle, uh, a fight against a wraith, and you win combat, but you do not destroy the wraith outright, you have to take a break test, even though you won combat, and this can cause you to flee. A nice little aspect to represent the terror the Banshee causes. The Banshee uh, has a rule called Fly, which means that she can fly just like any creature can in 5th edition. This is a 24 inch fly move. The only exception is that she cannot fly high, which was a rule in 5th edition that allowed you to just lift your character from the table and have it return at any point on the battlefield in the next turn. Really great for terror causing creatures that could uh, just suddenly drop down in the middle of a low leadership army and cause lots of panic and make the army break and flee uh, before the battle actually begun. The Banshee is a level 1 necromancer. She can cast magic and she can select one necromancy spell. And this Banshee, just like later Banshees, has a ghostly howl. Except that this ghostly howl is not a shooting attack. It is a special ability that can be used at the beginning of any undead magic phase. You can choose to use this ability and to do so you roll a d6 and you consult the following chart. If you roll a 1, the wailing disrupts the winds of magic, ending the current magic phase immediately. On a roll of a 2, the enemy any, uh, a single enemy regiment within 12 inches chosen by the undead player must make a leadership test. If they fail, they are frozen to the spot and can do nothing at all during their next turn. On a roll of a 3, the piercing shriek causes d6 strength 4 hits on one enemy regiment within 12 inches of the undead player's choice. And now we go a little bit to the movie The Matrix. Uh, the Matrix, of course, famous for the line, there are no spoons. The literal line uh, that follows uh, this short description I just gave you is, there is no armor save. On the road of a four, the Howl of the Banshee invigorates the undead and has the same effect as Van Hel's Dance Macabre. Choose one regiment within 12 inches for this to work on. And for those of you who don't know, Van Hel's Dance Macabre is a spell that allows you to do some extra movements and some extra fighting. It works as follows. It is a spell that can be used on a regiment of skeletons, zombies, mummies, whites, raids or skeleton horsemen. And this regiment during the magic phase may take one of the following actions. Charge, move, march fight around in close combat or shoot with a missile weapon. And I'm pretty sure, though not 100%, that this means that the uh, the march option only goes for units that can march normally. So not for skeletons and zombies, but it does work for ghouls. On the roll of a 5, because we are still on the Whale of the Banshee table, any living creature within 3d6 inches must make a panic test as if charged by a fear-causing monster. And on the roll of a 6, the Banshee's terrifying wail causes living creatures to age and crumble into dust within moments. Pick one Bretonian regiment within 12 inches and roll a d6 for each model. On the roll of a 5+, plus, the model suffers one wound and once again, Matrix style, there is no armor save. This is... Uh, most of these are very situational. They are short range... Um, 
12 inches uh, or 3d6 inches it can go very wrong if you roll a 1 and it will end your own magic phase then again if you don't really have too many power cards or, or magic cards then ending the magic phase might not be such a bad idea um the whale of the banshee very nice special rule for this scenario Apart from the Banshee, you can have a unit champion with the standard magic item of 25 points. You can have for your regiments 0 to 1 units of mounted whites that can carry a magic standard worth up to 50 points. And your mounted whites are what you could probably in later editions see as the Black Knights. You can have any number of skeleton horsemen and one regiment may carry a magic standard worth up to 75 points. You can include any number of carrion and these are the cute chicken pterodactyl terriers with the cute little raids on top. Not the uh, murder vultures from the Tomb Kings. Although of course if you do use the models for the Tomb Kings once I don't think many people would have a problem with that. You can have any number of ghouls and you can have 0 to 3 skeleton chariots, one of which may have a magic standard worth up to 50 points. For monsters, you can select bat swarms. The Red Duke has summoned countless bats and their great numbers now block out the rays of the sun. Your army may include any number of bat swarms at reduced cost of 50 points each. Normally these swarms would cost you 100 points per base. However, the Red Duke can summon so many that they are cheaper, which is just your regular uh, supply and demand economy at work in the Warhammer world. If the undead manage to get the uh, victory, the Tower of Wizardry is raised to the, get to the ground and the forces of Southern Aquitaine will be destroyed. So the Bretonians cannot have the Grail Knights that were defending the tower. Simultaneous to these two battles, another battle is happening, which is the race for the bridge, the third scenario. Refugees from the border villages flock to Castle Aquin, so Duke Gilon gathers his armies. His son, Sir Richmond, was on a pilgrimage to the Grail Chapel in Curon where he got a dream about his home being attacked by the undead. He understood this to be a vision of the Lady of the Lake and he immediately returned to his father's castle. Sir Richmond comes up with a plan to thwart the undead, to destroy the bridge over the river more so, so the Red Duke's forces have to go the long way around. This allows Duke Shilon some time to gather troops for the final clash. Richmond gathers some volunteers and some sappers and he forced marches them to the bridge. The Red Duke, on the other hand, sends his captain, the Dark Knight, to secure the bridge. The undead arrive just when the Bretonians are about to cross the bridge, just when they are crossing the bridge. This third scenario, the race for the bridge, has a rather interesting deployment zone. The undead deploy on the short table edge. On the opposite table edge, uh, 24 inches from, the, from either side in the corner, 24 inches by 24 inches, there is a square and that's going to be your Bretonian deployment zone. 
This Bretonian deployment zone is bisected by a river that runs from the long edge to the short edge, so this square is sort of cut in half diagonally. And across the square, uh, across the river is a bridge, a bridge that was also included in the campaign pack. Now the Bretonian deployment zone is divided into two halves. You have your regular de Bretonian deployment zone, which is in the very corner of the board between the uh, corner of the board and the river and the Bretonian advanced deployment zone which is across the bridge so between the undead forces and the river and you can set up your Bretonians in either of these deployment zones but that has some special rules because before you, your deployment begins the Bretonian player has to nominate which of his regiments performed a forced march. And then you have to roll a dice for each of those units and that will determine what happens and where they can deploy. On the roll of a 1, the regiment's horses are exhausted, so it misses the first turn of the battle. Also, one member of the regiment, but not a character, is, loosed, is lost due to overexertion. Remove one model from the regiment and the rest arrive on turn 2 in the Bretonian deployment zone, which is on the far side of the bridge from the undead's point of view. On the roll of a 2, you get exhausted. The horses are exhausted and the regiment arrives on turn 2 in the de Bretonian deployment zone. The same as the roll of a 1, except that you don't lose any models. On a roll of 3 to 5, you get forced march. And forced march means that the forced march was a success, so the regiment may begin in the advanced deployment zone. On the roll of a six, you get a lightning march. The Bretonians execute a brilliant forced march and arrive well before the undead. The regiment can be deployed in the advanced deployment zone. Also, the regiment is allowed to make an extra march move before the battle begins. However, they may not approach within 8 inches of an, any enemy regiment. I don't think you can manage that on a regular 6x4 foot map. But it was still nice to know that there are some rules that you cannot get too close to the undead. Your Bretonians deploy first, the undead deploy second and the undead once again have the first turn. This is a very short battle, it only lasts for 4 turns, and if after 4 turns there are no unbroken Bretonian regiments on the undead side of the bridge, the undead have taken the bridge. On the other hand, if there are any undead on the other side of the bridge that are not fleeing, then the undead can kill the sappers, and in either of these conditions apply, then the undead are victorious. If neither of these victory conditions apply, the Bretonians are victorious. So it does not depend on victory points. It's just where is going, where which regiment is going to be. If you, if your Bretonians manage to get uh, across the stream and 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 hold the bridge, then they will be victorious, and that will mean that the undead have to march the long way around and your Bretonians can have 500 extra points for the final battle. The final battle is going to be 2500 points for the Bretonians if you lose the bridge and uh, 500 points 
extra 3000 points in total if you win the bridge if you if you hold the bridge and uh, then subsequently destroy it something that i forgot to mention uh, for the last scenario is what happened with the outcome the historical outcome for the second scenario was that the undead won the battle zelda was cut down and this is very beautiful. Uh, it is said that fleur de leaf flowers grow at the place where she died to this very day. This third scenario uh, was going to end in a victory for the Bretonians. They managed to hold off the undead. So the undead had to march the long way around, giving Duke uh, Gilon time to rally more troops to his banner. The armies that fought in this battle are 1500 points for the Bretonians, and the Bretonians are led by Sir Richmond. He is a Bretonian hero, he costs 150 points, he's got a movement of 4, weapon skill 5, ballistic skill 5, strength and toughness 4, 2 wounds, initiative 5, 3 attacks, and a leadership of 8. He rides a Bretonian warhorse. He is armed with a sword, a lance, heavy armor, and a shield. And his warhorse is barded, giving him a 2 plus armor save. He has got the questing virtue and the virtue of the joust. And the questing virtue makes him immune to panic. And the virtue of the joust means that all of his attacks hit automatically when charging. That's nice, three automatic hits when you get a charge off. And with this knight you probably can very easily because of his special rule. Before we get to that, he has a magic item, the armor of protection. This is a regular heavy armor, but it also confers a 4 plus special save, which would translate in later eras to a 4 plus ward save. Very nice to have. His special rule is called Viva Bretonia. Sir Richmond is determined to win glory in the battlefield and he will not be put off by a bunch of walking bones. Once per game, at the beginning of the Bretonian player's turn, you may declare that Sir Richmond is yelling his battle cry and he will charge against his enemy. Sir Richmond and any regiment with him can make a triple move to engage the enemy instead of the normal double move for charging. And in addition, they are immune to fear and terror for the rest of the turn. So he's just going to eat up those undead, at least that's what he's uh, planning on doing. This uh, means that he effectively will have a 24-inch charge range, assuming that he is with a unit that also is mounted on Bretonian warhorses. Apart from Sir Richmond, you can have champions with a magic item worth up to 25 points. For your regiments, you can have 0 to 1 units of Knights of the Realm, which may have a magic standard worth up to 25 points. The Knights of the Realm, they were a little bit more reserved about this plan. And Sir Richmond, he managed to get mostly the, the rash, impetuous knights to join him as well as his uh, fellow questing knights, his comrades in arms. So you can have also 0 to 1 unit of questing knights. They can have a magic banner worth up to 50 points. And you can have any number of units of knights errant. In total, 1500 points for Bretonia. The undead can have a little bit more points and they also have a little bit more choices. 
The Undead Force consists of 2000 points and they can have for their characters the Dark Knight. Lord Falk is his name. And the Dark Knight, he has a uh, movement of 4, web skill of 6, bliss skill of 0, strength 4, toughness 5, 3 wounds, initiative 4, 3 attacks and a leadership of 9. He costs 175 points. Lord Falk is a white, but he is a special white lord. He's got, compared to regular whites, plus 2 weapon skill, plus 1 toughness and an extra attack. It says here that he is equipped with a hand weapon, he rides a skeleton steed, he has a shield and heavy armor. And the battle scroll says he's got a 2 plus armor save, but according to my cal calculations it should be a 3 plus armor save. The special rules that he has is that he is a white lord, which means he causes fear, he is immune to psychology, he is just like the banshee destroyed if he fails a break test, and whites have got special magic weapons called white blades. And for a white blade, each wound that he causes is d3 wounds. Now, I am pretty sure that this white blade does not work because he also carries a magic item called the ghost blade. And the ghost blade is an ancient and deadly weapon that will multiply his hits, not his wounds, but his hits. Each hit is multiplied by, uh, will cause d3 wounds instead of one. And the blows by the sword ignore normal armor, but magical armor saves as normal. Now there's a little bit of a, it's a little bit unclear as to how this will actually work in combat. Because this is rather reminiscent of the Hydra sword, which says that each hit you cause multiplies to d6 hits. However, it was later, uh, there was an errata in, in, I believe it was White Dwarf 222, which had some uh, updates and some clarifications on magic and magic items. And um, the Hydra sword, it was said, did, can only cause those hits against the number of models that you can actually attack. So, um, for example, if you have a... Uh, a dude with uh, four attacks who's carrying the Hydra sword and of those four attacks three hit then those three hits are multiplied to d6 hits but they can still only kill up to three models so if you are fighting against uh, models with a single wound on their profile you don't need to bother to roll I assume that the ghost blade works in a similar fashion but rules as written you can multiply the attacks that uh, the Dark Knight has. He's got three attacks. You can um, potentially get nine hits out of those three attacks. And if you want to be uh, very nasty, rules as written, if you're one of those kinds of players, then you can also say that each of those nine hits causes D3 wounds. So if you're fighting, for example, ogres, not that you can in this battle, you can uh, slay a unit of ogres in a single round of combat with this character. Then the only thing in this in this army, in, this, in the Bretonian army that this knight is fighting that has multiple wounds is going to be Sir Richmond. So it's really no use to have that white blade unless you're in single combat with him. 
I don't think it's supposed to work like that. And I don't think it's supposed to stack. And I think the ghost blade simply replaces this white blade. We are not done with Lord Fork's special rules. He's got a lot of them. One of his special rules is that he is Lord of the Dead. He is the captain of the undead host of the Red Duke and his mere presence invigorates the undead warriors. To represent this, he and any unit he is with are allowed to make march moves and they can declare charge reactions. So he is almost as if he is alive. We fought with the Holy Knight in the first scenario. Lord Falk has the special rule called the Unholy Knight. The Dark Knight is much more powerful than most of the whites that plague the world, as we have seen on his profile. Furthermore, he feeds on the essence of the living. To represent this, each time that the Dark Knight causes a wound, he is allowed to make one extra attack, as if he was not causing enough hits as it is. So this extra attack, I assume it also benefits from this Ghost's Blade special rule, one hit becomes d3 hits, um, one hit becomes d3 wounds. If he causes those wounds, if, if, the, uh, if, if the extra hits that he does wound, I think this stacks and he can keep hitting and wounding and, well, probably, if I read this correctly, get rid of an entire regiment all by himself if you roll high enough. The final rule for the Dark Knight is called Unholy Pride. He is as arrogant as and as self-confident in death as he was in life. This overwhelming sense of pride, puts the fact, plus the fact that he is a champion of the Red Duke, means that he will always readily accept any challenge issued to him. So he cannot refuse challenges. Apart from Lord Fork, you can have 0 to 1, level 1 necromancers. He can have a magic item worth up to 50 points. You can have any number of champions for your units and they can have a magic item worth up to 25 points. For your regiments you may select 0 to 1 unit of mounted whites, 0 to 1 unit of raids, any number of units of skeleton horsemen and one of which can have a magic banner worth up to 50 points. You can have any number of zombie units, any number of units of skeleton warriors, one of which may have a magic banner up to 25 points, any number of units of ghouls. You can have 0 to 1 undead chariot and 0 to 1 screaming skull catapults. For monsters, just as in the previous battle, you can select bad swarms at a reduced cost of 50 points each. There are to my knowledge, no specific miniatures that you can use for this battle. No specific miniatures for these characters that have been made. There is, however, a, a very nice uh, mounted white miniature that you can use for the Dark Knight. And for Sir Richmond, uh, any questing hero would do. Something I also forgot to mention for the uh, previous battle is that there are also no specific miniatures for those. Any damsel on foot will do for Zelda and there are of course Banshee miniatures. Uh, I'm, there might even have been a Banshee miniature released at the time of this Circle of Blood campaign pack but then it was later repurposed for a regular Banshee and I think it carried over all the way to 6th edition. It's one of those metal Banshees. 
Now we come to our final battle, the Battle of Saren Field. For this battle, um, the Red Duke marches upon Castle Aquin. Lord Gilon, he holds a war council as you do. Some of the more rash knights, they want to challenge the Red Duke to a single combat. Others want to prepare for a siege. And in the end, Duke Gilon says that we are going to do neither. He says we cannot expect this ancient evil thing to honor the rules of chivalry. And there are not enough supplies here in the castle to sustain a prolonged siege while our enemies need neither rest nor food. They do not rebel against our master or grow bored. The vigilance of their senses does not wane. We would be holed up in here like rats. And we must also think about the people of Aquitaine who have no shelter from the merciless enemy. The old duke sighed heavily. No. Our only option is to ride out to challenge our enemy where they stand and pray to the Lady of the Lake that she will bring victory to our weapons. Who is with me? I will ask no man to accompany me against their will. And of course, one by one, the barons and knights drew their swords, laid them on the table. All of them swore to follow Duke Gilon to the death. And then Duke Gilon spoke, I am proud of you all. He called for his squires, now bring me my broadsword and saddle my pegasus. The Duke of Aquitaine goes to war. And that is exactly what happened. The Bretonian force, they go to the exact location where the Red Duke was defeated the first time around. The fields of Saren. The battlefield is set up with the Bretonian deployment zone on the long edge and the under deployment zone on the opposing edge. There's a hill in the under deployment zone, some trees. There are some uh, rocks as count as difficult ground. And there is also on the dividing line, on the middle line and a little bit to the uh, to the left if you are standing on the Bretonian deployment so, uh, side. There is a tomb and this tomb is an important terrain feature. This tomb is also included in the Circle of Blood campaign pack as a cardboard model. The, Duke, uh, the tomb is the tomb of Duke Galant, which is one of Gilon's ancestors. It is a holy site for the Bretonians. As long as this tomb stands, it disrupts the flow of necromantic and dark magic. After any dispel attempts are made, you may roll a d6, and on a roll of a 4+, the spell fails. The tomb can be destroyed, it's got toughness 7 and 3 wounds. Any Bretonian knights within 6 inches of the tomb when it is destroyed hate all the undead for the rest of the battle. So the undead player of course wants to destroy this tomb but it is not without repercussions. Because this site that the battle is fought on is an ancient battlefield any of the raised dead spells the ones that I mentioned earlier will give you plus one to their rolls when you're raising skeletons or zombies. For the first time in Circle of Blood history we are going to have a regular deployment. The undead start by deploying a unit, then the Bretonians deploy a unit, and then you go back and forth until one army is completely deployed. The other one then deploys his unit, and then the first army, the smallest army, can make a move of up to 
four inches. Um, they can move the same unit multiple times, but you cannot get to within eight inches of an enemy unit. This is the same rule that we have seen used in the other two campaign packs as well for some of the deployments. This allows the smaller army to move up the board a little bit before the battle starts. The Bretonians will get the first turn, also a first for this campaign because the undead so far have had the advantage of the first turn. The battle will last for 6 turns and the sudden death victory condition is all about the Red Duke. If the Red Duke is slain or is fleeing off the table, or if, I should say if he has fled off the table, the battle finishes at the end of that turn and it is going to be a Bretonian victory. Otherwise you will count victory points and in the case of a draw the victory will go to the undead side. It says, well, there are of course no victory conditions for further battles, but there are some little snippets as to what will happen. If the undead win, they build up their forces during the winter and the Red Duke will march upon the king to get his revenge for his earlier defeat. Just with the Tower of Wizardry, it doesn't matter that this is a different king, he will just uh, exact his revenge and uh, doesn't really matter who is the exact person he is getting his revenge on. However, if the Bretonians win, the Red Duke is destroyed and the king will award the knights with lands and treasures when he returns from the Errantry Wars as mentioned earlier. Let's go to the Battle Scrolls. The war host of Duke Gilon consists of 2500 points of troops or 3000 points if you won the previous battle, the, the one where you have to take the bridge. The characters you can take are, of course, Duke Gilon, which is a Bretonian lord. He's got the profile of a Bretonian lord, Bretonian general. He costs 299 points. He's got a movement of 4, weapon skill and ballistic skill of 6, strength and toughness of 4, 3 wounds, initiative 6, 4 attacks and a leadership of 9. He is equipped with a sword, heavy armor and a shield and he rides on a pegasus. And this is just your standard pegasus, no extra upgrades. Duke Gilon is a grill knight which means that he has the grill virtue and is thus immune to psychology. And he also has the virtue of devotion which means that the knight is unaffected by magic spells. Although this does not work as a dispel and uh, spells like area spells or something like that can still affect other close by troops. Duke Gilon is armed with the giant blade which gives him plus 3 strength. And he's got the special rule commander which is a very nice one. He is a veteran of a dozen campaigns and he knows precisely how to command his men under pressure. He is also aging and grey bearded so his men will feel ashamed if they flee the battle while he is still fighting. To represent this, any fleeing unit within 12 inches of the duke at the beginning of the Bretonian player's turn will rally automatically. And I assume this is to mean any fleeing Bretonian units, although rules as written you can also rally your undead with this. Now for the other characters of your army, you can have the Holy Knight if you won the first battle and the Holy Knight survived. He is uh, again on foot just as he was in the first battle. You can have Lady Iselda if she won the defense of the tower battle and the Bretonians were victorious. 
You can have Sir Richmond if the Bretonians won the third battle and he survived. You can have 0 to 1 level 2 wizards. Each regiment you can you have may select a champion with a magic item worth up to 25 points. And you may include other heroes from the Bretonian army list. Each hero must ride a Bretonian warhorse and may take a magic item worth up to 50 points. Apart from that, there's one final character you can take, which is 0 to 1 Battle Standard Bearer of Aquitaine. He rides a Bretonian warhorse and he is bearing the Battle Standard of House Gilon. This may be a magic banner worth up to 100 points. For your regiments, you may select 0 to 1 unit of Grail Knights if you won the um, Battle of the, um, uh, what's it called, the Wizard's Tower, the Tower of Wizardry, the second battle. The unit may have a magic standard worth up to 75 points. You can have 0 to 1 units of questing knights with a magic standard worth up to 50 points. You can have any number of units of knights of the realm with a magic standard worth up to 50 points for a single unit. You can have any number of units of knights errant, any number of units of mounted squires, any number of units of regular squires, any number of units of bowmen, and any number of units of men-at-arms. Now for your undead, regardless of what you have won or lost, you can have 3000 points of troops. Your undead are led by the Red Duke, the Vampire Lord of Aquitaine. He has the stats of a regular Vampire Lord. He has movement 6, weapon skill 8, blizzard skill 6, strength 7, toughness 6, 4 wounds, initiative 9, 4 attacks and a leadership of then he costs you 460 points. He rides a skeleton steed, he's got a sword, heavy armor and his skeleton steed has barding. His magic item is the Blade of Leaping Gold which gives him 3 additional attacks in hand to hand combat, boosting his attacks from 4 to 7. He's got the special rule Vampire which means that out of all the undead troops, he is one of the few that can march. Apart from that, all vampires have the rule Transfixing Glare. At the start of hand-to-hand -hand combat, you can transfix, a, or at least try to transfix, a single enemy model. This works as follows, that model makes a leadership test. If the test is failed, he cannot fight back and any hits from the vampire are hit automatically. Any attacks from the vampire are hit automatically, I should say. Furthermore, the armor the Red Duke is wearing is called the Armor of Blood, a suit of armor with mystic properties. It counts as a regular heavy armor, uh, 5 plus armor save, but it does not inhibit the Red Duke's ability to cast spells. Apart from the Red Duke, you can have other characters, the other characters that have been in this battle. You can have Renard the Necromancer if the undead were victorious and he survived the first battle. You can have the Banshee if she survived the defense of the tower and if the undead were victorious. You can have Lord Falk if he survived the race for the bridge and if the undead were victorious in that battle. The other heroes that you can have are your regular Vampire Counts, Mummy Tomb Kings and White Lords. However, if you lost the first battle, the night battle at Merkel, you can only have a single white lord. 
These heroes may be either on foot or ride skeletal steed and each hero may have a magic item worth up to 50 points. You can have a battle standard bearer. Um, for one reason or another the battle standard bearer on the Bretonian army list is a 0 to 1 choice but over here it is not. Although well, you can always only have a single battle standard to my knowledge. The battle standard bearer may have a magical banner worth up to 100 points and he may be either on foot or on a skeletal steed. And as always you can have champions for your units with a magic item worth up to 25 points. Now for your regiments you may have 0 to 1 units of mounted whites with a magic standard worth up to 50 points. You can have 0 to 1 unit of regular whites with a magic, item, a magic standard worth up to 50 points. And just as the mounted whites would later translate into uh, the black knights, I would say that these regular whites on foot would translate into what would later be the grave guard. You can have 0 to 1 units of wraiths, 0 to 1 units of mummies, 0 to 3 screaming skull catapults, and 0 to 3 skeleton chariots. One of those may have a magic standard worth up to 50 points. And you can have any number of skeleton horsemen, one of which may have a magic banner of worth up to 50 points, any number of skeleton warriors with a magic standard up to 50 points for a single regiment, and any number of ghouls, zombies, carrions, and bat swarms for the regular reduced price of 50 points per swarm, 50 points per base. There's not really a special miniature to represent Duke Shilon on the battlefield, although there is this lovely 5th edition Bretonian general on a Pegasus. Uh, he came on a 25 by 50 millimeter cavalry base, uh, not the 40 mil base that the Pegasus Knights had in later editions, or maybe even 50 millimeter. I don't remember. But um, there is, however, a very nice miniature of a mounted vampire lord. It was later sold as a mounted vampire, just a generic vampire, but that is the one that can be used as the Red Duke. He's got those uh, spikes on his shoulder pad. He's got a curved blade that he holds above his head. He's got his cloak billowing out behind him. And he comes on a metal steed. Well, of course, the steed is, uh, is an undead skeletal steed, but it's made of metal. The miniature is made of metal. A very nice miniature. I'm, I'm very lucky to have uh, obtained it. Although I still need to paint it just as I do with most of the miniatures in my collection. When this battle was fought in, according to the history books, uh, what has been compiled in Appendix 1 of this campaign booklet, uh, the Duke Gillon was killed by the vampire, but the Bretonians nevertheless managed to defeat the undead. The Red Duke was last seen fleeing into the night with the questing knights in hot pursuit. We have almost come to the end of this episode. I do want to draw your attention to the other appendices in this book. Appendix 3 simply contains a random terrain generator should you not wish to use the standard battlefields that have been laid out in this booklet or if you want to have some more options. Uh, this is basically included in just about every of every campaign pack except I believe for 
the Perilous Quest, the one we are going to discuss on the next GJ solo episode. But the one that I do want to dive into a little bit deeper is the uh, second appendix, which gives you a couple of extra options to fight these battles with different armies. Now the Circle of Blood takes place in Bretonia, between Bretonia and Vampire Counts, but you can also imagine this to be a battle between a Vampire of Sylvania and the Empire. Instead of a Red Duke, you would have a Red Count, for example, and the army lists are adjusted adjusted to follow suit. The other option you are given is to have High Elves instead of Bretonia and Empire, with the Vampire and the Undead attacking a High Elven outpost that is uh, somewhere, it doesn't really matter where, but uh, just an Elf outpost that is going to be attacked by the Undead. And you can have High Elves fighting the Undead uh, using these same scenarios. That is going to be it for the Circle of Blood campaign pack. I hope you enjoyed this episode and if you did you are in luck because we've got still two more campaign packs down the road to discuss. Thank you so much for listening and as always have a great week.